Here we go. Um, we're actually going to be continuing, I think Gabby mentioned this, or someone mentioned this a few minutes ago, we're going to be continuing the teaching series of the sermon series that we started a few weeks ago called Cloud of Witnesses, and it's based out of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also run with endurance the race that has set, been set before us. And the race is a metaphor for following Jesus. And the cloud of witnesses, um, it's a metaphor for the crowd of people who've gone before us, the saints of old, who also trusted God in their lifetime. And um, each one of them has a story, and each one of us has a story. So we've been looking at these stories, reflecting how did they trust God and what did God do and how might we glean encouragement from them as we too fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race set before us. This week we're going to, I bet you you've never heard this sermon before. This week we're going to look at the story of Moses's parents. They're actually included in the the Hebrews chapter 11 sort of list, the, the, the cloud of witnesses. Who are these people? Well, they're all listed in Hebrews chapter 11. In that list are the parents of Moses. Did you know that? Most people just skip right over that. I'm excited. Um, so last week was Joseph, or no, last week was Easter, right? The week before that, we looked at the story of Joseph. And that ended with this amazing story of redemption, the reconciliation of brothers and God working something really good um, in an otherwise really bad situation. What the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. God used to preserve the life of many's. 400 years later, that family who started out as just 70 people, pretty big family, has grown and grown and grown. They've become so numerous, you might even call them a small nation at this point, called Israel. Now, 400 years later, there's new management in Egypt. A new king ascends to power, a new pharaoh. He doesn't know about Joseph or that history. All he knows is that this people, that we now call Israel, has multiplied so greatly, they have become a threat. They're very prosperous people. They're doing very well for themselves. And Pharaoh says to himself, if we don't do something to control these people or the situation, they might end up taking over things. They might end up forming an alliance with a neighboring nation and decide to um, go to war and take over this, this nation of ours. So this is what happens. This is the story. Exodus chapter 1 Verse 22, it's the last verse of Exodus chapter 1 up through Exodus chapter 2, verse 2. It says this. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, that's Israel, you shall cast into the Nile River, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took, as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he, her son, was a fine child, she hid him for three months. The child was named Moses. 
Now, I want to zoom in on a particular word. Bear with me. This might feel a little arbitrary for a second. I promise you we're, we're going. I'm connecting dots, all right? Bear with me. But I want us to zoom in on that word fine. If we can go to the next slide. There it is. He was a fine child. Now, I don't do this often because I'm not a language guy. In fact, I've never even actually taken a Hebrew course. I've done Greek. I haven't gotten around to Hebrew yet. But occasionally, it's just helpful to do a bit of a word study. That word, fine, in the Hebrew is actually the word tov. It's a very common word in the Hebrew scriptures, tov. It's commonly translated simply as good. It's all over the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, good, 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 good. It's the same word um, that we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. And it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was tov, or good. God saw that the light was good. So this is the word here for um, baby Moses. His parents saw that he was a tov child. So they hid him. Hid him. Um, tov is also translated at times, depending upon the context, as favorable or fine, um, attractive, handsome, even beautiful. Uh, for example, King Saul, he was described as a very handsome young man. He was to become the new king of Israel. Uh, many, many years later, he was handsome or he was tov. Uh, king David, same thing. He is described as being a very attractive young man. He would actually um, come after King Saul. King David was very tov. He was a handsome guy. Um, you guys remember sto the story of David and Bathsheba? It's a very tragic story, actually. Um, there's a woman who's bathing on her rooftop, and King David um, ends up spying on her. It is not a good moment in the life of King David, um, to put it lightly. He's spying on Bathsheba, who was tov in appearance. Uh, most of our Bibles simply translate the word as beautiful. She was beautiful in appearance. Which is why when we read uh, about the account of Moses' parents and how they hid him in Hebrews chapter 11. So when the New Testament recounts this story that we've just read in Exodus, this is how the author puts it. Hebrews eleven twenty three. By faith, when Moses was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, obviously, that's a Greek word that's translated beautiful, but they're referencing back to the Old Testament, the original story of Moses, this tov child, this good, this attractive this beautiful child. His parents saw that the child was beautiful. So by faith, they overcame the fear of the king's edict and they did something else. They hid the child. They kept, they protected the child. Question. What do you see when you look at the world around you? What do you see? What do you see uh, lately? When you just survey the horizon and you think about what's going on 
around you, around the world, in our city, etc. What do you see? Do you see all that's gone wrong? All that could go wrong, all that is going wrong? Or do you see beauty? Do you see the God of all wonder still at work all around us, showing up in dark places, displaying his mercy and grace everywhere he goes? Or maybe you see a bit of both. When Moses' parents, uh, mind you, the context, it's an extreme circumstance. And we kind of just like skipped right over it. We just read it as if it was a matter of fact. Pharaoh, because the Jewish population, the Hebrew population, was growing so rapidly, passed the edict saying every newborn male child is to be thrown into the Nile River. This is infocide. This man's a maniac. I mean, we, we, we talk about the, the current state of our world and the nation and the politics and the abortion, all these things that, serious things, yeah? Nothing compared to what we're reading about in this story. Could you imagine looking out in that world? Oh my goodness. Unimaginable, unimaginable. But when they looked, they saw that their child was beautiful and thus overcame the fear of the king's edict. And they hid the child for three months. What do you see? Um, Perhaps a better question. How do you see the world around you? Do you see the world through a lens of wonder, miracles, possibilities, faith, and beauty, or through a lens of fear, anger, shame, and bitterness? How do you see the world? Who, or maybe even a better question yet, who do you see? Who do you see when you consider all of the brokenness, all of the hard things, all of the injustice, all of the violence? You know, like the stuff of our world all around you. How are you viewing the landscape? Moses' parents saw something beautiful in the midst of unimaginable pain. And it was their ability or willingness to see beauty amid anguish that compelled them to risk their own security for the sake of a child. So we're talking about beauty versus evil. If you're wondering, like, what... Where are we going? What's, what's, what's your angle? Beauty versus evil. How do you see the world? I went with a bike or on a bike ride with my boy Judah yesterday. I feel like I'm talking about Judah a lot lately. <laughs> it's one of those things. Um, but he recently got a bike. Got a bike for Christmas. 18-speed mountain bike. Um, it looks super cool. It's not a very good bike, but it looks cool. Um, <laughs> And he loves it. So the two of us will go for rides anytime it's not raining lately. And we're just a minute away from Pier Park. Some big old dirt hills. It's the best. 
Yesterday, we went for a ride, and I said, Judah, um, why don't you try shifting the gears on, on your left hand? And he was like, what are you talking about? No, that's, that's for the brake. That's the brake. And I'm like, no, Judah, you, you have more gears. He'd only been using six. He didn't realize he had 18 gears. Now he's like crushing the hills. Before, he'd get about halfway up, just as much as like momentum would take him, and he'd have to get off his bike and walk up the rest of the hill. Now he's just, just dominating these hills because he's discovered gears. Here's the metaphor. How are you riding? How are you running? Are you tapping into the higher gears? There's something about this lesson, this, uh, this example that we see in the story of Moses' parents. They were living in a world riddled with violence, darkness, it's unimaginable, honestly. Can we agree? I mean, can you imagine living in that world? And yet they see differently. We're told that by faith they saw that the child was beautiful. And therefore they didn't fear. They weren't overcome by fear in their situation. But instead, they, they risked their own security. They sacrificed for the sake of a child. That's a story. You want to run well? Learn how to see beauty in the ashes. Amen. Thank you for that. You want to shift gears? You want to learn how to take steeper hills? You want to run well? Learn how to see beauty in the ashes. Now, some of you are like, hmm, I can see it. I can see it on your face. I'm trying to not to make eye contact with some of you because I'm like, I get it. When you're, it. when you're sitting in ashes, when you're covered in ashes, when you're hurting, that can be a very hard thing to hear. You're like, oh, so you basically you're just saying be positive. Is that what you're saying? Just be more optimistic. Laugh half full. Is that what we're talking about? No, no. That's absolutely not what we're talking about. That's not helpful. Seeing beauty in a world full of fear and pain is the disciplined refusal to let sin have the final say. Seeing beauty in a world full of fear and pain is the vigilant determination to look for the light of God's grace shining in every dark place. It's not to minimalize, overlook, or somehow ignore like the actual pain and injustice being done in my life or the world around us. It's just, it's simply, it's the determined refusal to let, the disciplined refusal to let sin have the final say. What kind, another question, what kind of seer are you? How do you see the world? We're all seers, are we not? How do you see our world lately? And of course, um, we need to answer the question as well. How do we define beauty? What is, what is this beauty in the ashes? What are we really talking about? How does God define beauty? Let's start there, shall we? Um, number one, it's not, as I just mentioned... It's not a naive optimism. It's not a refusal to acknowledge or engage honestly with the ugliness of sin. 
It's not denial. It's not just glass half full. That, that, that's a temperament thing. Some of us are a bit more positive. Some of us are a bit more melancholy. And that's fine. We all have our different sort of you know, personalities. It's not just a naive optimism. Beauty is not what I call a Disney Plusism. Anyone Disney Plus? Anyone get the Mandalorian? Anyone? 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 Okay, getting some nods. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. <laughs> Biblical beauty is not a Disney Plusism, meaning evil. Okay, so Disney Plus, it's not like the old school Disney, right? Um, well, Beauty and the Beast may be the exception. That's old school. Disney Plusism nowadays, and this is not some political like slam on Disney, all right? Um, it's just that nowadays, it's, it's almost as if the, the, the evil, the villain, is always, like, as it turns out, is always not that bad. Just misunderstood. Like, oh, that, you know, we thought that they were really bad, but as it turns out, the villain was, like, like pretty decent and, like, kind of winsome in this sort of, you know, misunderstood way. And so it, it, Disney Plusism is this idea that, like, what maybe appears broken and evil is actually not that bad. Pharaoh was evil, like super evil, all right? I don't know if like evil beyond God's ability to redeem his soul. I don't know. But the guy was a genocidal maniac. He commanded infants to be thrown in the river. Okay, he wasn't misunderstood. <laughs> he was just evil. Okay, so beauty in the biblical sense isn't Mere Disney plusism with this idea. Like, oh, the enemy's really not that bad. Actually, it turns out the enemy's the hero. No, evil's evil. Thirdly, biblical beauty is not a passive nicism. What do I mean by that? This idea um, that real Christians are just the nicest people in the room. That's just misplaced kindness. Or you might say that... Um, to be nice is to be too loving, to speak plainly about sin. You know, like when you're even more loving than God. <sighs> and so you think that beauty means we don't actually point at ugly, evil things. Say, no, that's, that's wrong. That's injustice. That's violence. That's sin. And... Just as plainly as the Bible talks about sin, we can talk about sin um, and still be nice and kind and gracious. It's not naive optimism. It's not Disney plusism. It's not passive nicism. And perhaps most importantly at all, of all, biblical beauty is not always the easiest to spot in a crowd. It's not obvious. I like the way uh, Shakespeare put it, not all that glitters is gold. I like the way Tolkien put it even better, all that is gold does not glitter. Better yet, I like when Jesus said, <laughs> he's talking to religious hypocrites, and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. That's so graphic. 
Beauty is not always obvious. Here's my favorite story. This is how, so that's what beauty is not. Well, I list four or five things. It's not those things. It's not this, this uh, sort of simplistic sort of version of beauty. It's something much more complex and wonderful. Let me read this to you. This is one of my favorite moments in the New Testament. Mark chapter 14. It's not going to be on the screen. Just listen. Mark chapter 14. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pyrnard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head, Jesus' head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them, as we should. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This picture of beauty is the quintessential gospel illustration. If you want to understand, if you want to illustrate the gospel as it goes out across the world, changing people's lives, reframing the way we interpret reality, the gospel, you want, you want to know like the best illustration for it? Tell this woman's story. The woman who came in with all she had, broke the alabaster flask of ointment and poured it over Jesus. It's all that she could do. It's all that she had. It was the best she had. And she gave it all. Because she had met the one who taught her what it means to be loved again. You know, this story is connected to a couple of other sort of examples. Perhaps even the same woman. It's kind of hard to tell, but so many parallels. We're told elsewhere that a woman comes in in a similar situation, a dinner, a party, and there are some sitting around the table, and they see what this woman's doing, and they're indignant, and they scold her. They don't, they don't understand this, this act of worship, this uninhibited sort of expression of adoration. And they tell her to go away. You're gross. You're dirty. You're unclean. If Jesus knew who you really were, he would tell you to leave himself. Only Jesus does know. He says, because this woman has been forgiven much, she loves much. This is a beautiful thing. So what are we talking about? We talk about biblical beauty. Seeing beauty in the ashes. What are we talking about? Beauty in the eyes of Jesus, looks like sacrificial love. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. A bit messy. 
Not everyone got it. Tragically, ironically, those closest to him in that moment missed it. They missed the beauty of the moment. In the eyes of Jesus, beauty looks like sacrificial love. But not just sacrifice in the name of piety or even altruism. He said, uh, you'll always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. And we should. Something else going on here. What Jesus calls beautiful is a kind of sacrificial love born out of a deep gratitude. Sheer adoration. Even joy. This is a beautiful thing. Jesus saw a beautiful thing. The disciples just saw a woman being inappropriate. What kind of seer are you? This should be challenging. When I read this, I feel challenged. Jesus saw beauty. His disciples just saw an inappropriate person or a, a, a person who shouldn't even have been there because she was a woman in the ancient world. You're not invited. There she was, pouring out all that she had, doing what she can. Her disciples, his disciples just saw a woman being inappropriate. Jesus saw beauty. What kind of seer are you? People who see the world through a lens of fear. Fear of the king's edict. Fear of all that could go wrong, that has gone wrong, is going wrong, will go wrong. The lens of fear. People who see, this is, by the way, this is Genesis 3. For the sake of time, we won't go there. This is all Genesis 3. People who see the world through a lens of fear hide behind religious pretense live under a weight of shame, criticize and blame, are constantly trying to control, they condemn others the way they condemn themselves, and they're highly contagious. Do any of those kind of get you a little bit? I don't want to condemn you. I don't want to heap shame on you. I want to invite you to come on a journey with me. That's what it feels like. That's what it looks like. A life that sees the world through the lens of fear. Lives in like this perpetual state of, of kind of not being vulnerable or covering up the name of religious pretense. We cover ourselves. Thinking that somehow I'm whitewashed on the outside. So we're good, right? I'm beautiful, right? Only there's something else going on in here. It usually manifests in criticism control you have this sort of like enlightened perspective but everyone else is just making a mess and getting it wrong the person who sees the world through the lens of fear really has no choice but to try and control what else what else are we going to do And it's highly contagious. People who see beauty amid pain. This is Romans 12, 13, 14. 
If you're a note taker, do yourself a favor. Tomorrow morning, get up a little bit early. Read Romans 12, 13, and 14 with a highlighter or a pen. Jot down some notes. People who see beauty amid pain are constantly forgetting their own self-interest, their opinion, their status, their preference, their rights, etc., for the sake of building others up. Um, that's sacrificial love. People who see beauty in the ashes are constantly forgetting their own self-interest, their opinion, their status, their preferences, their rights for the sake of building others up. Like the woman who gave all that she had. She wasn't concerned with the world around her thought. Nor was she trying to be controversial, divisive, political, or nonchalant. She was simply caught up in her affection for Jesus. And she did something that came out from the inside that Jesus looked at, stepped back, pointed at, and said, see that? It's beautiful. And when the gospel goes out, this moment right here, let this be written down and forever held up as the quintessential metaphor. This is what beauty looks like. This is what happens when my love begins to fill the heart of an individual. It manifests in beauty, in beauty. And it's no longer about me sort of presenting some kind of pious uh, version of myself or being the person to have all the answers. I'm getting my way or everyone agrees with my opinion. I don't have to be right. I don't have to have the final word. I just need to get close to Jesus. I just need to experience more of his love. I just need to pour out all that he has given me. That's sacrificial love. That is a beautiful thing. You guys doing all right? Is this heavy? So how? How do we do it? How do we see? How do we, in our world, it's hard, right? It's hard. Anxiety. Hard work situations, brokenness in families, heck, like mental health stuff. I mean, life is, life is messy. The world we live in, it's complicated, is it not? So how, how does one look to the horizon and amid all of the hard things, all of the brokenness, how do we do it? There's, there's beauty. Right, th right there, see it? Did you see it? That little, that little glimmer of light. Yeah, look into the darkness. You see it right there. There's the grace of God at work. Right there in the trash. Right there in the brokenness. Do you see him? Did you, did you hear his voice? Did you feel the grace? How do you do that? How do you walk through this world and life and all of the hard, painful things constantly just say, oh, there it is. There, there he is. There's the king. He's still alive. He's still pointing out beauty and manifesting grace wherever he goes. The God who said let light shine in the darkness has shown in, his, in our hearts 
and has given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of who he is in the face of Jesus Christ. And he's continuing to shine in dark places. So how do we get through this crazy, hard, broken, messy, often violent world? Pointing out beauty everywhere we see it. Beauty in the ashes. Beauty in the ashes. You guys want to know the answer? You want to know the secret? This is what I think. Repent and receive God's love. That's it. Repent. Take a moment. Take stock. How do you see the world? You're constantly pointing the finger at other people. You're the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. That's inappropriate. You don't belong here. That's gross. Are you critical? Do you condemn others the way you condemn yourself? If the answer is yes to any of that, welcome to the club. You're in a safe place. Now let's all repent. Jesus, we need you. We need you. The darkness can be overwhelming at some times. Lord Jesus, we need you. Would you fill our hearts afresh with your love? Because God's perfect love displaces fear. It drives out fear. This is how God defines love, by the way. He demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. While we were still living as rebels, ungodly children of wrath, there's all sorts of extreme words for it. God looks down and instead of condemning us to hell, he comes chasing us. He comes running after us. As we come over the horizon, rehearsing our I'm sorry, Dad, I'll do better speech. Can I somehow make it up to you? Father God comes charging at us, arms wide open, practically tackles us in his love, starts kissing us, celebrating. My child is home. My child is home. I got my boy back. And he welcomes us in the house. He cleans us up, not after we had gotten it all right, put together. As soon as he sees us coming over the horizon, that's sacrificial love. He pours out his life for us. We say, Lord, help. I'm a wreck. I am so critical. I'm constantly controlling everything and everyone around me. I leave if I can't control it. Lord, I'm sorry. I repent. I want to turn away from all of that drama. Lord Jesus, will you help me to receive your sacrificial love? Can I invite the worship team to join me up front, please? That's it. And that, that, Repentance and receiving God's sacrificial love, um, that's what we call a Christian lifestyle.
because we do it every day. Every day. Oh, Jesus, I need, um, I need some fresh bread today. I need you to fill me again. I need you to fill my heart again. Teach me to see what you're doing. How your grace is at work. All around me. Teach me to spot beauty in the ashes. So that I too can be like Moses' parents. Not overcome by fear. But willing to sacrifice personal security. For the sake of a child. Can we stand together please? Lord Jesus, thank you for being here with us. I feel like this has been a sort of whistle-stop whistle tour. Is that how you say it? A whirlwind. Um, Lord, as we take a moment and just worship you, as we sing, sing a song reflecting in your faithfulness, would you, would you lead us? Maybe um, if there are specific things that you want to you touch in our hearts, specific areas of fear that you want to heal, uh, Lord, would you do that now? Maybe bring just one thing to mind, not everything, just one thing, that we might turn to you again today. And would you help us to have hearts that are so soft and open so that we can receive your love? If you'd like to um, come up front during worship and uh, just kind of stand here, someone will come up and put a hand on your shoulder. No more than that. And whisper a prayer for you. If you'd like to do that, you're very welcome.